I guess the first time I heard of quantum computing, actually wasn't really quantum computing, it was quantum key distribution, was when Charlie Bennett came to Bell Labs to give a talk on his BB84 algorithm for quantum key distribution. And I thought it was really interesting. And I thought about for a while, you know, how could you prove that it was actually secure? But um, I didn't get anywhere, partially because I didn't understand the tools of quantum mechanics that you would need to use to prove something about quantum mechanics yet. This is the voice of Peter Shore, professor of applied mathematics at MIT and a pioneer in the field of quantum information science. As we established in episode one, for decades, the quantum ecosystem was small, with many of the same characters repeatedly running into one another at conferences, exchanging ideas, and working slowly in the long shadow of the Physics of Computation conference held at MIT's Endicott House back in 1981. So you can forgive Mr. Shore's lack of familiarity with the field back in the mid-80s. Heck, as we also established in episode one, I wasn't familiar with the field until we started recording, but... Well, maybe that wasn't the best comparison. I'm not a theorist. I host podcasts. But Peter Shore, on the other hand, is the originator, the discoverer, the inventor of an algorithm that uses quantum information to factor large numbers into their primes. Now, why is this important? Because Shore's algorithm, probably the most famous algorithm in the development of quantum computing, allows for this factoring to occur exponentially faster than even the most efficient algorithm designed to run on a classical computer. So much of the promise of quantum computing has to do with running multidimensional calculations at an exponential scale. So the dream is, once these calculations can be done at scale, we'll have quantum computers doing work in under 30 minutes that might take a classical computer millennia to complete, right? However, the realization of this dream can be a bit tricky. Not only is the process of keeping qubits stable, so to speak, challenging, quantum computers require large-scale, super-cold refrigeration in order to do this, but there are potentially destructive phenomena like quantum noise and quantum decoherence to contend with too. Actually, I'm not sure that we should proceed without first really understanding what quantum noise is. Uh, This sounds like another opportunity to visit our friend Abe Asfa for an Abe Splainer. Noise means a lot of things to a lot of different people. At the end of the day, it's something that you don't want on top of the signals that you care about. Thank you, Abe. Uh, but yeah, there are there are these potentially destructive phenomena out there, right? But if you can build a large enough quantum computer where qubits are not undone by errors without quantum noise or quantum decoherence, well, then Shor's algorithm can actually help to do something useful with quantum computers. Sebastian Hassinger, who leads academic partnerships for IBM Quantum, mentioned the power of this moment when he, Abraham Asfa, the global lead of quantum education and open science at IBM Quantum, and the trusty Abe Splainer himself, and I sat down to chat with Peter. When I think of the prominence of of the factoring algorithm in the development of of quantum computing, um, it does seem like quite a, a pivot point um, a proof point of of a practical use for quantum computing that um, that could not be matched by classical computing in terms of performance. Shor's algorithm can also break RSA, perhaps the best known public key cryptosystem. Think about it. 
RSA, first published in 1977 and still widely used for sending data securely, is premised on the idea that integer factorization of two large prime numbers, or what's known as the factoring problem, is unmanageable in the realm of classical computing. Classical algorithms can't do this work. But a quantum algorithm, Shor's algorithm, demonstrates that it might be possible to break RSA on a large quantum computer. And folks, back in 1994, coming a little over a decade after the conference at Endicott House, this was seismic. This not only demonstrated the potential power of quantum computing, that a large enough quantum computer could break the seemingly unbreakable, it also kicked open the door to all sorts of quantum computation possibilities. Shor's algorithm influenced the way quantum computers are designed. It served as an accelerant in the realm of quantum research. It was the next tectonic shift in the wake of the Endicott House conference, and it charted the course of the field for a decade to come. But back in the early 1990s, it came so close to not happening. Not unless Umesh Fazarani visited Bell Labs to give a talk. I'm Matt Hooper, and this is Forwards and Backwards, A History of Quantum Computing. Now, when Umesh Vazirani, one of the founders and preeminent thinkers in the field of quantum computing, visited Bell Labs, Peter Shor was still working there, and Umesh had published a paper covering his Vazirani Bernstein algorithm, which, like all quantum algorithms up to this point, was theoretical proof that quantum information could do things that classical computers could not, just not anything practical or useful. Yet. And then the next time I saw quantum computing was when... Umesh Vazirani came to Bell Labs to give a talk about um, his Bernstein and Vazirani paper, which defined quantum Turing machines, and which gave, I guess, the Bernstein-Vazirani algorithm, which showed that something was a little bit faster with a quantum computer than a classical computer. And... I had taken a lot of physics courses as an undergrad, so that intrigued me, and I started, you know, researching papers about the um, quantum computing. I started thinking about it. And then the next year, I was on a conference program committee, and Dan Simon has submitted his Simon's algorithm to the program committee, which showed how to um, factor, not factor, which showed how to solve Simon's problem with a quantum computer exponentially faster than you could solve it with a classical computer. Now, Simon's problem isn't really a problem that's very good for much except showing that Simon's algorithm is faster on a quantum computer. For further context here, When Peter says Simon's problem isn't very good for much except showing that Simon's algorithm is faster, well, Simon's algorithm was one of the first quantum algorithms to demonstrate that a problem can be solved exponentially faster than even the best classical algorithm. This was the inspiration for Shor's algorithm. This got Peter's mind racing. But I started thinking about it, and what it does is it uses periodicity over a binary vector space. And it does this by taking the equivalent of a Fourier transform over this binary vector space. So that gave me the idea that maybe you can use quantum computing to solve discrete logarithm problem 
because I knew that the discrete logarithm problem was very connected to periodicity, and periodicity was very much connected to Fourier transforms. So I started thinking about it, and eventually I solved it. And the embarrassing thing is that the program committee managed to reject Dan Simon's paper. So <laughs> I called him up and, um, you know, or maybe I sent, actually, I think I sent him email and he sent me a copy of the paper. Then I um, wrote up a draft of the, the algorithm for factoring. And, you know, luckily Dan Simon, one of Dan Simon's results was one of Dan Simon's comments was he said he never could have discovered this by himself, so <laughs> he's not so upset that <laughs> I um, used his idea to make something very important. And Simon's paper got into the next conference, which was the same conference my factoring algorithm was in. Here's Abe wondering how Peter landed on factoring, rather than discrete logarithms, for breaking crypto systems like RSA. Something that you said that was very interesting is that when people think about Shor's algorithm, they think of the factoring algorithm. But in your story of how you came across these problems, you first uh, your story is that you first thought of discrete log as the first target to go for. So how did factoring come into the picture? Okay, so factoring and discrete logs are the basis of two very commonly used public key crypto systems. So every time you send information over the internet, the fact that nobody can read this information is protected by this, I guess, algorithm called RSA, or crypto system called RSA. And mm. that depends on, for its security, on the fact that it's very easy to take two large numbers and multiply them. But once you've taken two large prime numbers and multiplied them, it's very hard to take this product and extract the two large prime numbers. And there's another crypto system called Diffie-Hellman, where the difficulty is based on the hardness of the discrete log problem. And people mm -hmm. have tried to solve these problems with classical algorithms um, over time, and the classical algorithms have greatly improved from when RSA was first proposed. But right. you know, every time someone has proposed a classical algorithm for RSA, they find another classical algorithm along the same lines for discrete log and vice versa. So there's some kind of connection between discrete log and factoring, although it's it's a very vague connection. You can't write down what the mathematical connection is. So once I found the discrete log problem, I then started working on factoring and I got it, I guess, probably a week or two after I solved discrete log. And anyway, when I, you know, the first real, I can't say it's public, but well, the first time I gave a talk about this, I gave a Blackboard talk in Henry Landau's seminar at Bell Labs, and that was on a Tuesday. And I explained how to solve discrete logs for the quantum computer because I hadn't figured out factoring yet. Do you remember what I said in our first episode about how in the earliest days, 
heck, in the earliest decades of this field, what we found the most inspiring was the strong sense of community, the power of the very early stage quantum ecosystem. Well, what Peter says next about what happened when Umesh Vazirani, the very same fellow who inspired him in the first place, gave him a call? Eh, listen for yourself. So, after I did that, um, the following weekend, I got a call from Umesh Vazirani, who was one of the people who started the quantum computing field. And he said, I hear that you can factor on a quantum computer. Tell me the algorithm. And luckily, between the Tuesday when I gave the talk and that Saturday, I had actually solved factoring. So I <laughs> tell him how to factor it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so there's this child's game called telephone or whisper down the lane or something where someone tells something, something Someone whispers a phrase to somebody and then that person whispers it to the next person and that person whispers it to the next person. And <laughs> the answer is often completely different from what the first person whispered. So this is something like this must have happened going from my talk on Tuesday to Umesh calling me on Saturday. Someone heard this from you know, heard about that I could solve discrete log from somebody and then told somebody else I could factor. And this isn't surprising because <laughs> these are, you know, these are the two very, um, you know, they have this, these two problems have this strange, um, you know, commonality that any algorithm that solves one can usually eventually be adapted to solve the other and they're both used as bases of public key crypto systems. So someone got it wrong, and Umesh heard factoring rather than discrete log. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good that you were able to not disappoint him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he would have been very happy with an algorithm for discrete log. Think about this. Peter gives his talk on Tuesday. Umesh Vazirani calls him on Saturday. Thirteen years after the conference at the Endicott House, things are moving with great speed. Uh, what was his reaction to hearing about the factoring algorithm when you described it to him? Um, I think it was wow or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he told more people and, um, you know, that summer I had various, um, you know, it took me, you know, a month or two to write the paper. And that summer I was sending out... Um, rough drafts of the paper to people and they were passing these rough drafts on to more people and so eventually um, oh, I was answering questions about mistakes in the rough drafts long after I had fixed them in my um, own draft and I guess a few, I think it was a week or two after Umesh heard about it that The Economist called me and wanted to interview me about the um, factoring algorithm. So it made it into the made it into the popular press and um, you know it was Arthur Eckert at Oxford who told um, the reporter for The Economist whom he knew about the factoring algorithm but actually I think The Economist wasn't the first um, first place to publish it because some other people interviewed me later but actually the story made it to the press earlier. 
that's an extraordinary um, sort of res, you know uh, reception for for what um, was and still is a fairly esoteric subject matter. Do you think that there was sort of pent up desire to see some practical proof of of an advantage of a quantum computer, or do you think it had more to do with capturing the imagination of of sort of the the idea of code breaking, which is you know, obviously uh, factors into all kinds of popular culture, kind of uh, flights of fancy about being able to to decrypt anything and, and uh, you know, sort of the spy spy uh, um, aspects of, of cryptography that, that attract that kind of attention. Well, I really think it was both. I mean, so, <clears throat> you know, before the factoring algorithm, there were only a few people who were working on quantum computing and... Um, half of them were, I don't want to say crazy, but half of them were very eccentric, <laughs> <laughs> very eccentric individuals. <laughs> and, um, you know, after the factoring algorithm, lots of people started working on it. And right. I've heard from a number of people, uh, you know, who still remember when they heard about the factoring algorithm and how excited they were and all that stuff. So for physicists, it was you know, um, I guess one reason they were all interested is, well, we knew quantum mechanics was weird, but we didn't know this weirdness had any real use. Um, computer scientists, it's, um, well, I mean, an algorithm for factoring for computer scientists and cryptographers was a great, was a big deal. And this algorithm was on a quantum computer, which... I guess makes it not as big a deal, but it's still a very interesting. And um, there's another thing which, you know, computer scientists really thought that anything you could do if efficiently on any kind of computing device, you could do efficiently on a standard digital computer. And this shows that this, you know, assumption which some computer scientists thought was really the very foundation of the field might be wrong. Let's take a second to examine what Peter was saying there, that computer scientists assumed that anything you could do efficiently on a computing device, you could do efficiently on a standard digital computer. And this showed that that assumption was wrong. This was and remains a wildly important event in the history of quantum computing. If not the Eureka event, then certainly a Eureka adjacent event. Candidly, as we all prepared for this interview, and I found myself reading again and again about Shore's algorithm, I was a little starstruck when we had the opportunity to meet Peter Shore himself over Zoom when we spoke to him while we were all in our respective homes. <laughs> Peter's position as a major innovator in the field grew, and he went on to win a MacArthur Fellowship in 1999, the very same year, in fact, that Peter gave a lecture suggesting that error correction is very difficult to do with quantum computing. Now, remember, 1999 is only five years after Peter devised Shor's algorithm, and only 18 years after the conference at Endicott House. See, in order for the race to actually develop quantum computers to begin, a number of things need to be realized. Uh, we, we've been over this, I, I know, but remember how at the top of the episode, we discussed how Shor's algorithm could be used to break public key cryptography systems like RSA if it was not, you know, defeated by quantum noise and quantum decoherence. 
I, I realize also for some of you, I'm sure that's all you think about. And for other listeners, well, uh, I, I get it. It's not exactly top of mind when you have a cup of coffee in the morning. But I, I want to go back to decoherence for a second because Abe and Peter are about to talk about error correction. And I said at the top of the show that Shor's algorithm could be used to break RSA on a large enough quantum computer where qubits are not undone by errors. So I think it's helpful to pause here and explain that error correction is what's used to protect quantum information from errors on account of decoherence. And it's it's required to achieve success to achieve a complete avoidance of errors when qubits interact, or what's known as fault tolerance. And in the late 90s, well, even bringing up error correcting codes, bringing up quantum error correction was pioneering. And I remember the first time I learned about them, it's not even a trivial statement to say quantum error correction is something that exists. It's really not an easy thing to think of. But now what you're saying is in the 90s, we go from maybe having some understanding of quantum information theory to here's Shor's algorithm and here's also error correction as a way to kick us off to do things experimentally. How how did you see the reception to these two things coming together? Were people enthusiastic? Did that kick off government funding that didn't exist before? What do you think was the impact of these two bodies of work together? Well, I mean, it, it really started a race to develop quantum computers. And, you know, people proposed all sorts of interesting um I guess, architectures for quantum, you know, for, you know, qubits like um, atoms floating on liquid helium, you know, impurities in diamond. And, um, you know, some of these are still um, maybe make, um, you know, do useful things with quantum information. It's impossible to overstate what happened to Peter Shore in the wake of Shore's algorithm. Well, to Peter, to his reputation, but also to the whole quantum field. Maybe the most flattering um, introduction was Len Edelman, who's a cryptographer, gave this introduction. He, you know, started out by saying, you know, if you look back at the history of technology, you have Leonardo da Vinci, and then he showed a flying machine from one of Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. And then you also have Charles Babbage and who built the, um, or who tried to build the, um, what is it, differential engine? Difference engine, yes. Difference engine, yeah. And he, um, and again, he showed some drawing of Babbage or someone from the time. And he said, well, there's a difference between these two things. Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci's flying machine was of a design that could not possibly have worked. Whereas Charles Babbage, the difference engine, actually would have worked if he could have engineered the parts well enough. And then he said, well, um, Peter Shore has um, invented quantum factoring algorithm. And at this point, we don't know whether it's like the Leonardo da Vinci's factoring uh, flying machine, which is fundamentally flawed and could not possibly work, or whether it's like um, Babbage's difference engine, which would work, but we don't actually have the technology for that yet. The comparisons to da Vinci, to Babbage, I mean, the enthusiasm was palpable at the end of the 1990s. 
While the classical computing revolution had, by that time, in popular consciousness at least, given way to Web 1.0, to the first wave of major internet investment, the boom and bust, quantum computing evolved along a much longer timeline. Not Babbage to microprocessor timeline, but still pretty long. But this chapter, here at the end of the 20th century, sparked a renewed wave of interest in quantum, and Shor's algorithm had a direct impact on a new generation, many of whom we will spend quality time with later in this series. Folks like Jay Gambetta, who currently leads IBM's quantum computing efforts. So in the 1995 period, it was really, when I was doing my PhD, even though I was doing interpretation, there were all these, uh, so I started my PhD in 2000, but there was a lot of interesting papers that I found myself reading, like quantum teleportation, Shaw's algorithm, and, and all, all the uh, Shaw's paper. So in the 1990s, it was really about um, this math can do something cool like quantum computing, and we yet still don't even understand the math. And so there was a lot of excitement about what can this math quantum, what can this quantum do? How do we understand it? And, um, and, uh, and, and so I would say that period of time focused on that. And Margaret Martinosi, who leads the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate at the National Science Foundation. Given Margaret's role in funding science, her view of what she calls virtuous cycles of how best to support cutting edge technologies on sensible timelines, be they multi-year or multi-decade. It was interesting to hear how many people viewed Shor's algorithm and its massive impact as a way of maintaining interest in this burgeoning field. I, I also think in this case, uh, in Quantum's case, we're looking for uh, virtuous cycles, if you will. So it's the notion that um, as we start to see more examples of success in quantum, um, it will pull in more interest, more investment in a way that can actually bootstrap us towards um, scaling out uh, quite effectively. Mm -hmm. And so you do have to have some people who are willing to sort of uh, play for the longer term. Um, but having said that, I, I think there is this notion of a sort of feedback loop, a virtuous cycle that can mm -hmm. help carry us along. I think Shor's algorithm is a great example of, Shor's algorithm kept everyone interested for mm -hmm. a long time, right? But now we actually have other algorithms that have come in that are more likely to be buildable at practical levels sooner. And, and so Shor's algorithm is a great example of how it engaged and maintained interest um, for a while. It still does, mm -hmm. but now there's a whole new class of algorithms, VQE, QAOA, and so forth, that are helping sort of um, pull us through the next chapter. But the excitement can only last for so long. Ken Brown, professor of electrical and computer engineering at Duke University, explained to us that as he embarked on a career in quantum in the mid-2000s, in the wake of Shor's algorithm, in the wake of the funding environment Margaret Martinosi described, there was a withdrawal of support of resources for new quantum research and development. In fact, there was a quantum winter. And in that time frame, there was a real contraction of, from my perspective, a real contraction of, um, of federal spending and, and, and in a way that was like, yeah, basically like, okay, we've, we've, you know, we funded it for 10 years. Right. 
what do, what do we what do we you said here? you were going to be breaking cryptography by now that's right that's right <laughs> yeah and i think the uh yeah and so it was a weird time around then 2005 2006 uh yeah i w- i think it was the if I were to have the first quantum winner, I would call that the first quantum winner. Right. Much like the conference at the Endicott House, the creation of Shor's algorithm was a defining event in the history of quantum computing. And it's funny that this idea of a, a quantum winter, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, just the sheer amount of progress made in the late 90s, that, that doesn't always come back around. That doesn't always lend itself immediately to a, uh, another virtuous cycle, as, as Margaret described. Because it's wild how much changed in the roughly half decade between Shor's algorithm and the early 2000s. And, and let's think about what Margaret was saying, too, that Shor's algorithm kept everyone interested, that that was one cycle and that a new cycle would commence with, quote, other algorithms that have come in that are more likely to be buildable at practical levels sooner. Well, there is obviously a big gap between the 90s and the mid-2010s when so much innovation accelerated. So what exactly was the progress of quantum information algorithms in the early years of the 21st century in and around that quantum winter? You know, in, in 2005, you wrote a paper on, uh, on algorithms in the, the quantum information space and the, the progress or, or lack thereof, um, in developing more algorithms, um, of the, of the type of the, of the factoring algorithm that, that have a, uh, a theoretical, you know, uh, quantum advantage to them. Do you think the situation has improved? Are we making more progress towards discovering more algorithms or are we still sort of lagging behind? Well, I mean, we have discovered more algorithms and we've also had a lot of proposals for algorithms that we have no idea whether they will work or not. And if you look back at classical algorithms, um, there are some algorithms that never would have been discovered without experiments from classical computers. And one of these was the, um, you know, one of these is a simplex algorithm. So I guess Danzig discovered the simplex algorithm or developed the simplex algorithm for World War II optimization. And then after the war, he published a paper on it. And, you know, if we'd had to, um, if we hadn't had any computers to run the simplex algorithm, which is the case for quantum computers, we don't have any quantum computers big enough to run any algorithms of real um, interest. No, it would be an open problem whether the simplex algorithm worked until we actually developed a computer. So there are some algorithms you can design that you can't possibly prove that they work until you actually try them and find out that they do work. Sort of and, a, an iterative chicken and egg problem. You have to come up with the <laughs> the uh, yeah. the idea and then wait for the hardware that actually allows you to prove that idea and then and then make progress beyond that, right? Right. So right now we have a number of algorithms that may or may not work if you actually implement them on a quantum computer. And once you actually get a small quantum computer, we can try lots more algorithms and see whether they work. And I think this is going to be one of the major ways we discover new quantum algorithms is by experiment and not by um, theory. I think the problem with theory is that we really do not know how to think about 
designing quantum algorithms yet because, I mean, you need to look at these algorithms taking all possible paths through the computer and right. um, making the amplitudes add up or cancel out. And that's something that's very hard to think about. There is no guarantee that the universe will make sense to us. In fact, even as we move from theory to experimentation, and working by experiment is, as Peter said, quote, one of the major ways we discover new quantum algorithms, we should consider that no matter how many experiments we run, this next great leap in computation plays by the rules of the universe. Quantum mechanics does not lend itself to anthropocentrism. This is a field that feels continually non-intuitive at each new turn and with every new breakthrough, because it does not claim that humans are the center of existence. <laughs> but while something might be non-intuitive, that doesn't mean it's impossible to build a community around it. It's just, well, it can be difficult. And part of the reason that Shor's algorithm stands tall in the history of quantum computing is because there are still so few algorithms in the field. Abe touched on both of these things in our conversation. Why do you think we have so few algorithms in this field? And how do you think we should be educating people about quantum computing to maybe help make it easier to come up with more quantum algorithms? That's a very good question. I mean, I don't know how many... I mean, so it's usually computer scientists who come up with good algorithms. Computer science departments have not jumped to take up quantum computer computing that quickly. So I think part of it is that there's this huge, um, you know, huge um, demand for deep learning and AI and teaching everyone deep learning. So mm. if computer scientists are if departments are expanding, what they want is someone doing deep learning or machine learning or something similar to that. And quantum computing is a lower um, priority for them. Mm. I guess mainly because there aren't students besieging the computer de scientist departments to want to, you know, um, get a degree and go off and do deep do quantum computing rather than, or at least not as many as want to go off and do machine learning. It's very interesting because now as part of the National Quantum Initiative in the U.S. and even broader initiatives all around the world, there are now mandates to try to build a quantum workforce. Um, and with these mandates comes the responsibility of training people about quantum computing, whether they're in universities or whether they're retraining from the jobs that they currently have. And so this raises the question of what is an effective way to even teach about quantum computing in general, given how it draws from so many different disciplines and puts them together. Yeah, that's a very good question. So I guess, you know, Ideally, you would like people doing quantum computing to know engineering and physics and math and computer science. And um, I guess if you have a five-year PhD for each one of these fields, that takes really way too long. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we, we're going to have to do the best we can and teach enough um physics to engineers to uh, or much enough quantum physics to engineers and enough um, 
computer scientists to physicists to um, mm-hmm. be able to get them to work in this field. Teaching quantum physics to engineers and to computer scientists, the cross-disciplinary nature of this whole field continues to be what's so exciting about it. And also, frankly, why the story unfolds over such a long period of time. Advances in the story of quantum computing are special, uniting physics with computer science, theory with experimentation. And as I spend hour after hour staring at my computer screen, experiencing all that information technology has given me, which looks a lot like arguments online, the feed, an unquantifiable endlessness reflecting back the insecurities and short tempers of humans, I find myself marveling anew at the possibilities of what quantum technology has yet to give us. What remains unrealized, as yet unbuilt by machines that might be, yes, non-intuitive, but that also don't place humankind at the center of existence. And we'll be able to change so, so much. Listen, I, I know that this is a fairly heady subject matter, that you're probably saying to yourself, to quote Peter Shore, There must be some simple, intuitive reality underlying quantum mechanics that will make it all easily understandable. Well, I'm not so sure. And neither is he. He wrote that to describe the intended audience for a poem he'd written. It's called No Clockwork Universe, and he was kind enough to recite it for us. If the eternal dance of molecules is too entangled for us mortal fools to follow, on what grounds should we complain? Who promised us that nature's arcane rules would make sense to a merely human brain? Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So ever since quantum mechanics was discovered, there are people saying this theory doesn't make any sense at all. This is no clockwork universe, but it is a universe where a brave group of scientists, engineers, mathematicians, industrialists, and academics are advancing our understanding of computation. And the work of Peter Shore and the impact of Shore's algorithm has been a beacon, a game changer, a massive influence on this community. It is a great leap into the realization of a quantum future where we are solving problems exponentially faster than what classical computing is capable of and understanding the physical processes of nature in so doing. But without ever promising, to paraphrase Peter's great poem, to make sense of nature's arcane rules with our merely human brains. That's our show, folks. I would like to thank our guest, Peter Shore, co-creators Sebastian Hassinger and Abraham Asfaw, the whole IBM Quantum team for their support and cooperation, and of course you, our listeners. I am your writer and host, Matt Hooper, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone.